All right, I'd like to call the February 27th, 2023 regular meeting of the Shoreline City Council to order. Will you please join me in the flag salute? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully. Present. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Here. Councilmember Ramsdale. Present. Councilmember Mark. Here. Councilmember McConnell. Councilmember Povey. Here. Councilmember Roberts. Here. Councilmember McConnell will be joining us shortly via Zoom, and I will acknowledge her when she uh, when she pops up on the screen. Um, next up is a approval of the agenda. Councilmember Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. I move to pull. Uh, I'm would well. I'm not sure exactly how we are phrasing this, but um, I'm going to pull uh, item 7C from the consent calendar. And at the appropriate time, I think I'd like to make a motion to postpone to a date determined by the mayor and the city manager. All right, so, and, and one council member can do this. My understanding is it becomes an action item, and at that point, the motion, I see the city uh, attorney nodding. So at that point, it will, become, it will become action item 8A, and when 8A comes up, you would then move to, to do whatever you think is appropriate with it at that point, correct? All right, so, so consent calendar item 7C will now become action item 8A. Are there any other uh, changes to the agenda? All right, the agenda is adopted as amended. Next up is approval of the city manager. Sorry. <laughs> it's reported to the city manager. You're approved. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Good evening, council. <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> I'd like to start with a reminder that applications are due tomorrow for our environmental mini-grant program. Individuals, groups, and businesses can apply for grants of up to $5,000 for projects that address the city's environmental priorities. You can learn more about the environmental mini-grants, see past projects, and find the application at shorelinewa.gov forward slash environmental mini-grant. There are a couple of great webinars coming up that I'd like to draw your attention to. The first is Designing Future Forest Gardens, offered by Cascade Gardener. Trees are a great solution to the climate challenges we face, but they need to be chosen with care and nurtured in their youth. Join Jesse Bloom, an ISA certified arborist and award-winning ecological landscape designer on Tuesday, February 28th. She will cover her favorites for a number of situations and ecosystems here in the Pacific Northwest and how to ensure a resilient forest, future forest garden. I was running, so I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, see more Cascade Gardener classes and find the link to RSVP for this webinar at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. The second webinar is on the all-electric home hosted by King County Library System on March 8th. Switching to all electric appliances can reduce your personal carbon emissions, improve indoor air quality, and often reduce bills. Join experts from Rewiring America and Electrify Now to learn how to electrify your home and contribute to a sustainable shoreline. You will also get an overview of new federal funding opportunities under the Inflation Reduction Act. Find a link to RSVP at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. And finally, the Planning Commission meeting scheduled for March 2nd has been canceled, 
Their next meeting will be on Thursday, March 16th at 7 p.m. See meeting agendas when they are published at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. You can also subscribe to receive agendas and for other calendars and news update at shorelinewa.gov forward slash alert. And that concludes the city manager's report. And Thank I will you. catch my breath. All right. Thank you, Mr. Ellington. <laughs> Next up are council reports. Are there any council reports? Councilman Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, last week, it seems like a long time ago now, but last week a bunch of us went to the Association of Washington City City Action Days uh, in Olympia. It was a good event. Uh, I think some of us were there for a couple days. Some of us were there for just a day, but I think it was a good amount of work that was done, and it was always good networking with uh, other city officials from across the region. Uh, for me, myself, I was appointed to the um, AWC Board of Directors Nominating Committee, and so I was there doing some work there. Um, and, well, if anyone wants to apply, there, uh, our seat on the board is open this year. Uh, I also, during the conference itself, I was able to attend a, a few panels. I was a, went to the uh, federal legislative update and I went to a panel on working on affordable housing and ending homelessness in our communities. And then yesterday, Mayor, I was, yesterday, <laughs> I participated in the ICHS uh, 5K, uh, which was right through on the Interurban Trail. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Deputy Mayor. Uh, thank you, Mayor. <clears throat> so while much of the council was at ADBC, I was back here in Shoreline, and I had the privilege of um, meeting with a delegation from the city, um, members of NUSA, and a Representative Pramila Jayapal to thank her for the dollars that she has brought into Shoreline to complete, uh, help us complete the 148th Street pedestrian bridge. Uh, it was a wonderful event. Uh, we were able to visit both sides of I-5 to, to try to envision the future and what that means for unlocking pedestrian access to the light rail station um, after it is open. We then went down to um, meet with members of the Lake Forest Park City Council and learn more about some work that she's doing there um, or supporting there to improve salmon culverts and some of the water flowing down in that area as well. So salmon habitat. It was a great day, um, wonderful to see her and her advocacy for North King County. Also, um, back in February, I attended the latest uh, Regional Transit Committee meeting, um, and we just had an update on a lot of the work that's happening in Metro uh, upstairs during dinner. Um, they're continuing to see growth and people returning to transit. Metro is also very much uh, looking ahead, planning far off in the distance uh, to figure out the sort of capacity they're going to need to have when some World Cup games come to the city, as well as the MLB All-Star Weekend. So some, some big demands on our system uh, coming in the near future and things that they're already thinking about. Um, we continue to discuss the Metro Connects plan, and you'll hear more about that as it continues to take shape. Thank you. Thank you. Other reports? Councilmember Povey. Thank you, Mayor. Just to follow up on what Councilmember Roberts mentioned about uh, AWC, a um, few months ago, I was appointed to the Education and Training Committee serving on a AWC. And I just want to use the medium to encourage all my colleagues to uh, take the CML, which is just minimum, uh, 30 hours only. If you can spend time to take that, it will save our city attorney so much trouble. 
And then if you want to advance, it's 60 hours to do the ACML. So it's great to you know, uh, take all these courses, just equips us to serve uh, in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you. Other council reports? All right. It, well, I was down in Olympia. I was able to meet, along with other council members, with our own delegation, as well as with uh, Senator Leas and Representative Fai, about funding for the bridge, the pedestrian bridge. We are between 8 and $10 million short, but I'm hopeful that our efforts in Olympia, combined with an application for a raise grant and ongoing efforts in D.C., are going to result in getting that funding shortfall met. So I'm hopeful that that, that will be a celebration we can accomplish after years and years of trying to get it funded. I also had a chance to sit through a parks board meeting, and I'm hoping we can make that a tradition. We traditionally have attended Council of Neighborhoods meetings. Parks board was very grateful to have me there and asked that if other council members are interested, they would be delighted to have a short you know, question and answer session with a council member at the start of every meeting, and then just a chance to observe for as long as you want to be there. Um, I posed the question of whether the parks board felt we were on the right track in terms of acquisitions versus developing parks. And what I heard was, was really not surprising, that both are important, but that there is a sense that we have these parcels and we should either make it clear that we're not going to be developing them or we maybe need to shift gears a little bit and work more on development and less on just sort of land banking land. Finally, I attended the Tibetan community's Losar, which is the New Year's celebration this Saturday, and it was really fun. <laughs> I would encourage all of you to get a chance to go. It was a great chance to learn about Tibetan culture and also about the Tibetan community here, Shoreline, is, is sort of a center of, of Tibetan immigrants, and uh, they've got a fantastic community going, and I'm delighted that they're here with, uh, with us in Shoreline. Next up is public comment. I understand there's no one signed up in advance, correct? Uh, no one signed up for remote public comment. Oh, I see. Okay. All right, we, we have, have one tonight. We okay. have one in person. All right. Lathan Wayne. Yeah, Mr. Wayne, come on up. Good evening, friends. Um, my name is Lathan Wayne, Shoreline. Um, I'm here to speak on uh, we need more funding for people with special needs here in the city uh, for recreation and stuff. And that's uh, why I'm here. And I'm a self-advocate. And I think it's important to get more recreation funding here in the city of Shoreline. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wayne. Any other public comments? No. All right, next up is the consent calendar. It has been amended already by removal of item 7C. Is there a motion related to the amended calendar? Deputy Mayor. I move approval of the amended consent calendar. Second, Mayor. Will the clerk please call the votes? Mayor Scully. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember Mark. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. The consent calendar passes unanimously, and Councilmember Connell has joined us. Next up is action item 8A, which is the former uh, consent calendar item 7C. Is there a staff member who can briefly present on what that is? And I believe there's a motion related to it. Yeah, Mr. Ellington. All right, thank you. Hey, good, good evening. 
Um, so the the consent item that was pulled is um, was number seven C, which was approval of the 2023 comprehensive plan docket. So uh, the council at um, I believe it was a couple of meetings ago directed staff to put that on the consent calendar. Uh, the the council was uh, going forward with the planning commission's recommendation. Um, to essentially roll up, um, I believe it was several publicly initiated uh, comp plan amendment requests into the, the 24 periodic update of the comprehensive plan, um, and then to go forward with the one city initiated request, which is the update to the PROSA plan. All right, thank you. Yep. Councilmember Roberts, I understand you have a motion. Yes, um, Mayor, I would like to move. Um, to postpone discussion of item 8A, the comprehensive plan docket, to a time where the mayor and city manager, to, and reschedule at a date that the mayor and city manager may recommend to the council. And if there is a second, I will speak to the rationale. Sarah, second. A second for the purposes of discussion. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, uh, there's no, I have no objection to what the Planning Commission recommended. The only the question in my mind is there is a number of ha uh, bills relating to comprehensive planning that are going is going on in Olympia right now. And we're in the middle of a, we're almost to the first floor cutoff in the legislature. And we'll see at that point if there are, what bills may be moving forward that may have an effect on our comprehensive plan and what we do. Um, we can only amend the comprehensive, we can only put, produce a final docket once per year. And so if we make the move today to, to adopt the docket, we are prohibited from doing anything else relating to the comprehensive plan this year. The reason for delay I recommend is so that there may be, um, there's several of pieces of legislation have particular effective dates on them. Um, sometimes either effective date of when the law is passed or uh, there's some that have an effective date of January 1st of 2023 and some things had to be done by a particular time. And if there are some bills that do not pass this year my, my thinking is if there are some bills that are not may not pass this year, but the legislature may still want to continue pushing forward in a subsequent year or in, in, in the second part in, in 2024, if we want to get potentially want to try to get ahead of some of those effective dates, we would want to have the flexibility on the docket to um, be able to, we, we want some flexibilities to amend our docket to allow potential changes happening in in our to the, our comprehensive plan in 2023. I know that's <laughs> very confusing, but I mean again, by if we delay, we can have some more flexibility in terms of what we can we might want to add to our docket. Um, if we, but if we adopt it right now, we would we no longer have that flexibility. Other questions, Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Sorry. Other questions or comments? 
Councilmember. Yeah, thank you, Mayor. Yeah, I guess I have a question for Councilmember Roberts. Um, are you referring to the middle housing bill, um, the uh, House Bill 1110, that um, would allow uh, duplexes and triplexes in all uh, residential zones? Is that one of the one of the concerns that you have? That is potentially that's one of the pieces of legislation. If I may answer, Mayor. Yeah, of course. Uh, that is one of the pieces of legislation, but there's other pieces. I mean. In, there are pieces of that that particular legislation around affordable housing, um, and there's sort of other chunks of that that may we may want to be get ahead of. And I don't want to I don't want to suggest them now, and I don't want any proposals now because I don't want the city getting too far ahead of where the legislature is. But because we don't again, we don't know what the legislature is doing. Does that answer, <laughs> Councilmember Moore? I, I'm unclear what you mean by get ahead of. Is what you're thinking that the legislation that, that there may be something with this legislation that we'd want to do a study in 2023? I just, I don't know what you mean by get ahead of. So if you could describe that a little bit. I mean, it, it could be, I, I don't have an answer, <laughs> council member. It's just providing a little bit more, flexibility by not adopting it right <laughs> today um, and then letting the city manager city attorneys sort of look and perhaps do some little bit of strategic thinking if we if we as a council want to address some potentially address some of these issues before the legislature does or to get ahead of any particular effective date so there's one, at least one bill I'm aware of that has if we were to have taken action before January 1st, 2023, we would have been exempt from certain provisions. All right. Other questions or comments? Deputy Mayor. I, I think I have a few. <clears throat> so, Council Member Roberts, um, are you asking us to reconsider any of the amendments that were privately put forward? No. Um, is there a, was there a deadline to when a new amendment could potentially be added other than the approval of the plan? Mr. Bauer, I think that question's for you. Uh, for privately initiated requests, it would have been December 1st of last year. But that deadline does not apply to council initiated Correct. amendments. Okay. When, there are, there, are, there are a lot of ifs here that, and next question would be, for approval of the at the amendment with in regards to the prosa plan is there a problem delaying that or is there some action that needs to be taken it immediately to move that one forward so um, as long as the prosa plan is adopted by the end of the calendar year is my understanding um, is, that's really the primary deadline for the prosa plan so as long as the docket still advances with the intention that those amendments would be adopted by council by end of 2023. And what, like setting this to a date unknown, um, are we looking at weeks, months? I'm not familiar with the legislative session and when that would be, we'd have a final answer. Councilor, you're always welcome to answer. I don't want to. I don't want you to be getting interrogated here. But so if you no, you have it's an answer, my please, it's my motion. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, <laughs> floor, first floor cut up is March eighth, and then the legislative session itself ends in. I should know this off the top of my head, but in April. <clears throat> All 
All right, and um, Mr. Bauer, it, let's say that uh, one of these unknown, this potentially advancing bills, um, does if, if something is not on the comprehensive plan docket, does that keep us from adding to the uh, planning department's work plan in a given year? Uh, it, yeah, so the comp plan can only be amended once per year. Um, and and then at that point, you know, the further you get into the year, the harder it gets to in. kind of move things in and, and reshuffle and reprioritize. Um, I will say, so uh, last November, I think it was, the council adopted the scope of the comprehensive plan update for the 2024, you know, the major update, which uh, we did try to look ahead and, you know, we have middle housing as one item in that scope, which we're already getting underway in terms of studying that. And so there are some items there, hopefully we'll address, but yeah, there's, um, you know, it's it, the challenge of uh, trying to predict what what may advance and what not. And, and Thank you. Um, Councilmember Roberts, I, I appreciate your attentiveness to what's going on in Olympia. I'm, my tendency is to want to go ahead and, and move forward um, with this agenda item tonight. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Will the clerk please call the vote? Okay, so this is on the motion to postpone discussion? That's right. Okay. Mayor Scully? Nay. Deputy Mayor Robertson? Nay. Councilmember Ramsdale? Aye. Councilmember Mark? Nay. Councilmember McConnell? Nay. Councilmember Poby? Aye. Councilmember Roberts? Aye. All right, the motion fails four to three. The next item is agenda. Oh, actually, as an aside, Ms. Someone check Smith, I can't see Councilmember McConnell. Will you know when she's raising her hand? Um, yes, Councilmember McConnell, currently you have your video off. Um, oh, okay. If you raise your hand, I will let Mayor Scully know. Oh, and, and, but I did uh, unmute when I was um, voting. But I, uh, We heard. Did you hear that, though? Okay. No, I, I, I could hear you. Yeah, sorry, I, I could hear you. I just did, I, I realized you didn't speak during the discussion, and it's because I, I didn't I didn't know if you'd raise your hand. But I think I think we've got it sorted. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah. Next up is now agenda item eight uh, B, which is action on resolution number five hundred six, adopting the public <coughs> registration plan for the twenty twenty four. Mr. Mayor, what's that? The, the item that we didn't do the consent calendar. No. Wait. You did, but now you need to vote on the individual item that was pulled from the consent. So the first motion was to postpone. Was to delay, and now yes. we have, all right. Mayor, so, thank you. I move Sorry. to adopt the comprehensive plan docket for 2023. All right. Is there a second? Second. All right. Any discussion? Will the clerk please call the vote? Mayor Scully? Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson? Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale? Aye. Councilmember Mark? Aye. Councilmember McConnell? Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. All right. The motion uh, passes unanimously, and now we're on to action item 8B, which is action on resolution number 506, adopting the public participation plan. So the purpose of tonight's presentation on this topic is to present for council consideration resolution number 506, which is accepting 
the public participation plan for the 2024 comprehensive plan update. So tonight I'll quickly walk through the highlights of the participation plan. Um, and um, as you recall, and as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, council passed um, resolution 502 on November 7th, which set the scope and then directed staff to bring back the, the participation plan. So the comprehensive plan, as you know, is the primary planning document for the city. It establishes the community's vision and articulates the roadmap for how to achieve the vision through the goals and policies that are used to inform the functional plans as well as provide direction on the development regulations that the council adopts. Uh, the plan consists of the 10 different chapters or elements there noted on the right. Uh, the plan's informed by several factors, including current demographic and jobs data, growth targets, legislative requirements that are coming from the state, the Puget Sound Regional Council, the King County countywide planning policies, and then obviously, and, um, and the, the focus of tonight's discussion is community input. Uh, so with all these items uh, informing the elements of the plan, um, we're, we included uh, within the scope of the comprehensive plan update for the 2024 major update, the three key themes or lenses that we hope to be the focal point of this update cycle. And those are uh, housing, equity and social justice, and climate. Uh, so with the participation plan, we hope to reach a lot of people as with, we do uh, always strive with any planning effort, but we also hope to especially give a voice to those groups and organizations that have been negatively impacted by past, poli uh, past policy decisions. So the strategy that I'll walk through tonight uh, and is detailed in the plan is really intended to outline how to effectively inform and engage with the community. Uh, the strategy consists of the, the public participation principles, the goals and outcomes, and then a roadmap for implementation. So I'll quickly go through each here. Uh, first, the, with the principles, the plan calls out five different public participation principles. The first is that input matters and is a priority. Uh, all input reflects the community and is needed to inform the decision making. The next, outreach and engagement should be early and often. Uh, we've spent a lot of time and thought into how, how to engage the community and we anticipate to do so as the, the, uh, the process advances. And then third, outreach and engagement will be equitable, transparent, and inclusive. Um, and really with the goal that we're reaching um, and using methods that are culturally appropriate and that reach a diverse community. Uh, fourth, we have the outreach should build partnerships and leverage existing relationships. Our efforts shouldn't be just one way, but instead need to off really offer an opportunity to build lasting partnerships and relationships with the community uh, that go beyond just the comprehensive plan update process. Oops, and I think I skipped one last. Uh, outreach needs to include follow-up, so always have that feedback loop in all of our engagement processes 
um, so we can uh, follow up and inform the community how their input was used and what the next steps are. Uh, and so with the principles in mind, there's three overarching goals within the plan. So the uh, first goal is to ensure that everyone knows what the comprehensive plan is, as long, uh, or along with the scope and schedule as well. So that first phase of the outreach is really about getting the community um, up to speed in terms of what the comp plan is. It's kind of a, a, an intimidating document if you're looking at it for the first time um, and not very approachable. And so wanting to um, inform and, and bring everyone up to a certain level um, and, and communicate in that regard. The second goal is to ensure that there are meaningful opportunities per, to participate and understand how input's being used. And then the third goal is to ensure that we as the city have the right information and context to inform the plan through an equity lens and advanced goals of equity and social justice. Um, and this graphic is in your packet this evening as well. It's a part of the, uh, the participation plan. But this is the public participation roadmap that was generated and is really intended to visualize how the participation plan is going to be implemented. So I've highlighted that middle section there in, um, in red, which outlines the different tools and tactics that will, uh, will really form the foundation and really the um, the crux of how we'll be engaging with the community. Uh, and so this uh, kind of high-level timeline here illustrates uh, the project, uh, the different phases or the timing of it. And so we're working hard right now, uh, getting ramped up for the first phase of public participation. Um, so we hope to be launching an online open house in the near future. Uh, that will sort of kickstart uh, the engagement efforts for the 2024 comprehensive plan update. And then from there, we hope that that information and feedback gathered will help inform and uh, be the springboard for having more deeper uh, focused conversations with the community around different topics um, and engaging with specific individuals and community-based organizations on those topic areas. So the staff recommendation is for council to move forward and adopt proposed resolution 506 to accept the 2024 comprehensive plan, public participation plan. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Mayor. Thank you. And this is an action item without previous study session, so there's an opportunity for public comment. I'll now open the public comment period. It's my understanding that no one has signed up in advance. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. All right, and it's all staff in the audience, but would any of you folks like to make public comments? Um, there's two two non staff in the audience. Okay. Oh, well, I, I'm sorry. I'm speaking of online. Sorry. Online, right? Yeah. No, yeah. All right. I, I meant <laughs> in the audience. All right. Okay. Is there anyone online who would like to make public comment related to this agenda item only? If so, please raise your hand. All right. Seeing none, I will close the public comment period. This is an action item, so we generally begin with a motion. Deputy Mayor. I move that we uh, adopt proposed resolution number 506. Second that. Motion and a second. Would you like to speak to your motion, Deputy Mayor? <clears throat> yes, I look forward to um, voting and to approve this resolution. I did have a question, though, um, that came up, and this didn't catch my eye before, I guess, when we looked at it. But it was this idea of um, <clears throat> finding 
compensation, uh, providing compensation to individual stakeholders who represent organizations or diverse groups in our community. Um, it's tucked in to goal number two, um, and it just it really just caught my eye as I was reading read, reading through it this this time around. Um, and so I wanted to just ask a little bit more about how how we would go about finding these individuals to compensate for their input in this process. Um, is that an application that goes out and we make the community aware of, or are we attending events and seeing if you know? individuals kind of rise up through the ranks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's something we're currently looking at different options with that. Um, I think where we'll likely land is that it'll be an application process, um, but probably, you know, something, nothing too onerous, right? Because we want to encourage input. But um, yeah, there's several different models out there. And I believe the city's employed um, some compensation methods on other engagement and other advisory body advisory bodies and so we'll probably look to that first um, but also like i said we want to be approachable we want to have a low bar so that we are encouraging input and um and reaching those groups yeah. thank you thanks councilor Pope. thank you mayor i, I love this is great uh however where i am not seeing what um, I was expecting to see is the engagement strategies, you know, the techniques. Now we want to reach out to people who do not speak English. How? I didn't see that in the plan. We, two weeks ago when we had two presentations from uh, Linwood uh, Link and I think King County, whatever, I, I appreciated how it was specific. This is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it and we are anticipating this outcome. Fantastic, I see the goals, one, two, three, and the outcomes that we are looking for, but how? I don't see the how in there. And so if the plan is moving forward this way, then I am, I, I, I wanna see the hows in there, how we collaborating or partner with the CBOs and uh, getting them motivated to get the necessary feedback that we need. I don't see that in the plan. Yeah, so uh, the, yeah, so a couple of uh, responses here. So one, we wanted to stay relatively high level so that we can be adaptable and nimble throughout the process. So as we kind of kick off the initial phase, as we learn you know, what's maybe working, what's not, we can adapt um, in that regard. To your point on kind of more the how, um, we have one of the appendixes for, uh, to the plan is an equity framework or lens and so that does speak to some translation services and things so um, look to translation where it's appropriate um, but uh, also we yeah we look to um, or hope to also employ uh, the community liaison framework as well and so look to bring members of the community or members of, of a community-based organization uh, within the team to help us reach those groups or those individuals. Um, and again, that's where some of the compensation model would come into place. Um, and we'd look to them to co-create with the city team and really be a part of that team. Uh, look to them to help 
facilitate or identify different engagement events that we could be, come and be a part of, or maybe they're facilitating and leading the event entirely themselves. Uh, but I think that's part of the how. Um, it, yeah, you. Uh, it's probably not as clear as it as it maybe could be. Um, I think you know that's definitely kind of the overarching principle of um, reaching you know, a broader audience and more people that we haven't traditionally heard from, and especially, like I mentioned, those that have maybe in the past been negatively impacted by policy decisions, whether that's from the city or pre-city um, or any level of government, right? And so we're, we're hoping to um, advance some of those broader goals of equity and social justice through this work. Thank you, Mayor. Councilman Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. I do want to follow on the, some of the questions that Councilmember Poby uh, asked. Um, I remember, I mean, it probably was over a decade ago now that we did a specific visioning piece with, um, in Korean um, with sort of with the Korean community in Shoreline, and that was very successful. And what I see in the plan for around in-person events is only sort of translation services. There's no I understand you're sort of speaking broadly of this co-creation process, um, but there's no. I don't. What I don't see is I don't see a sort of tangible commitments to doing something um, in this plan as written. I mean, it's not saying we are going to do these um, things in multiple languages other than just provide translation. It would be. It'd be nice if we had something sort of concrete to say that we are going to. It's not sort of just we're going to ensure that materials are translated, but be active in making sure that we are reaching out to communities in the language that is most comfortable to them. Um, and then, um, so that's my sort of, sort of specific feedback that I caught. But the other question I have is, what are we going to do about community expectations? We have developed our community and primarily as a single family neighborhood, that is what most of Shoreline is. Um, we have, as a council, we said a couple of years ago that we, wanted, we are going to evaluate um, middle housing. Uh, we're gonna look at duplexes, we're gonna look at triplexes. We're on the process of looking at and evaluating cottage housing right now. But what happens if that the community is no longer going to be, how are we going to communicate and manage expectations if the community is no longer going to be a part of that discussion because of decisions made not by our council? How, do, how do, in this plan do we sort of help manage those expectations? Yeah, I think it's part of that uh, in, informing level you know bringing um bringing the community up to speed in terms of maybe what's transpiring in olympia or elsewhere um and i think that's really like i mentioned is going to be the focus of that first phase of outreach is just informing um, because even if middle housing doesn't advance we have a whole slew of other mandates that we need to incorporate uh, the biggest and most obvious is the growth targets, right? And so we need to be planning for a certain number of new households and new jobs, and that ripples through 
um, really how we structure and how we plan to some degree. And so I think that's uh, the main piece is uh, informing the community of how all of these different pieces and levels of planning and government fit together. I mean, and I think that's really important of how we sort of set those. I mean, I think setting those expectations early is really key to being successful process because some of these decisions may be out of the community's hands. It may be out of the council's hands. And I don't want these processes and these visioning workshops to really to fight battles that we can't fight <laughs> or to have to talk about things that we have very little or control over at, at the end of the day. I mean, certainly we're going to have discussions about what middle housing looks like in Shoreline, but sort of that the bigger picture, we may not be, we may not have to say at the end of the day in turn, or we may have a high, high floor in terms of what we, what will happen within our city. So I just encourage that sort of expectation setting sort of really sort of goes into all these meetings and it's going to have to be an ongoing thing because some we are going to see people come in at the end who may not know everything that's come before <laughs> so i mean that education piece is going to be continuous mm -hmm. thank you mayor other questions councilmember mark thank you i'm so glad mr bauer that you are addressing this in such a thorough fashion is one of the biggest complaints that i heard on the planning commission is is just not feeling there was enough feedback. My question to you is, is there a, a feedback loop for a better way to put it? Your answer to Councilmember Povey was, is you wanted to have flexibility and to determine what to do from there. Do you have targets or how, how, how do you envision the feedback loop working for you to decide that additional effort needs to be put in some area to try to get the total community engaged in this process? Yeah, I, um, so part of that is, again, informing kind of next steps and then also as we embark onto, you know, going from the first phase into the next phase and so on, um, informing how, or I guess first, what we heard at that last stop, you know, what, what was the uh, kind of the key ideas and, and um, concerns and input we heard from the community in the previous phase and how is that being incorporated into the next phase of work and, and into the plan itself and that's going um, that that's a big task right and um, it's going to be especially important as we share that first draft of the plan because then again you know you've got a a comp plan and we're sharing that out and a whole set of new uh, goals and policies and everything um, but to tie that back to specific input and feedback that we heard and sharing and connecting those dots for people hopefully in a way that's understandable and and that's approachable uh, how is the input that someone gave us in the spring of 2023 incorporated into a planning document come spring of 2024 as we're kind of uh, getting into that final draft form. Uh, thank you. Uh, 
appreciate the additional discussion, and I also agree that's really important. Um, what if five people come? You know, what, what if some very small number of people are involved? Are you going to attempt to reach out again, or are you just going to take that and move forward with, we have input from this very small group, and we're going to consider that sufficient to go to the next phase? Uh, yeah, I think it depends on what, uh, what it is we're reaching out on. And so this first phase, if, if we get responses from five people, then honestly, I think we've totally missed the mark and we need to go back to the drawing board. Um, if we're looking to reach out on a specific topic related to a specific issue, and maybe it's, you know, five people, I think is kind of a minimum number for like a focus group type setting where we're trying to really hone in on something that might be impacting a certain group or an organization or something, um, we can start to unpack that. But I don't think one focus group either would be appropriate of five people. You know, maybe you're reaching out to another organization and getting in another five and then another five and so going beyond that. Do you feel that's written in this plan? Uh, yeah, so. Flexibility to do that? Yes. <clears throat> Was that it? Okay, all right. Any, any other questions or comments? All right, I've, I have a couple suggestions and a question. Um, so for starters, this, this looks great as a plan. I mean, this, this is what I would expect to see in a plan. It's, it's fairly broad brush. But I think you've heard some concerns that I either had or I now have, now that I've heard them from other council members. And what I would appreciate is some check-ins on this, on the implementation of it, to sort of see how it's going. We're canceling a couple meetings this month, and that's because things are running smoothly, but this kind of thing seems to me that the plan constructing targets isn't hard, the implementation is, and I would appreciate hearing how it's going and having an opportunity to say, gosh, I think we need to dedicate more resources to X area. And what I would love check-ins on is sort of the outreach process generally. What's being done? How many things went out in which languages? What responses you're getting? what areas you're not getting responses, I would also appreciate check-ins if you're seeing trends early on. And that goes to Councilmember Roberts' question on education. If the trend you're seeing is people are showing up angry and they're demanding this one particular thing, then maybe we need to do something outside of this to address community concerns that we didn't know were there. Finally, I, it, didn't, it didn't bother me until the Deputy Mayor brought it up, but I'm now sitting here trying to spin out all the different scenarios where we would pay folks to participate. And I think it's tough. I mean, if the question is, do we, play, play, <laughs> do we pay the planning commission, then that's one set of equitable considerations that for me isn't that hard. But it's, do we compensate members of the public for participating in a public process? Do we pay everyone who shows up to a town hall, all 500 of them? Do we only pay selected people? Do we have a form that says, in however broad terms, please affirm that you are part of one particular group, right? Do we select people for a closed session and leave some people out? I mean, I just don't, I don't have solutions for these things, but I would like to know what staff is proposing, what staff is doing. Because on the flip side of that, we do ask members of some communities to volunteer their time as the voice of whoever. And I remember a hearing on police stuff and I proposed that we have a volunteer body to review police reports. And I got anger from a young man who was like, look, 
I'm in law school. I'm expected to show up here. I'm not being paid to be here tonight. I'm expected to be the voice of my demographic, and that's not fair to me. And I just thought, you're right, you know. So I don't, I mean, I'm posing the problem, and I don't have a solution. But I would like us as policymakers to know what's happening. So we can say either, hey, whoa, I think that's going to send the wrong message. Or we can say, well, maybe we do need to push the envelope on this a bit. So what I would love to get informal council input on, if you want to comment, is, is my suggestion that we have check-ins and we can work out with city staff sort of the timing on it. So, all right, I'm seeing head nods and, and yeah. thumbs up. Okay, right, I don't think there's any concern with that. So, so I'm going to be voting for this, but it's with the proviso that we get fairly regular updates on how it's going. Not because we don't trust you, but because there's some tough stuff here that I think we may be able to provide some input or you know, more funding on. Any other questions or comments? And again, I'm trusting you to know when Councilmember McConnell raises her hand because I can't see her. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Any other Councilmember Ramsdale? Yeah. As you're, as yeah. You did, as you're mentioning, um, Mayor, kind of your thoughts, and I'm kind of thinking about other uh, council members' thoughts as well. I really appreciate the input that are my fellow council members have uh, expressed regarding um, public participation. You know, uh, one thing that uh, I kind of realized that I've learned in the short period of time I've been on the council is that, that the loudest voices in the community usually represent the extremes. And that, that it's really important to be able to, you know, kind of invite the quieter voices in the, in the community. Because I think that's, you'll get, a, you'll get a, a better idea of really where the group stands. So to be able to kind of reach out to um, I'd, I'd like to, yeah, I'm hoping to see staff kind of make an effort to reach out to kind of maybe not necessarily the traditional avenues, whether it's the uh, Council of Neighborhoods, but really kind of re reach out to neighbors maybe they're on a random uh, basis, just to, I don't know whether it would be sending out ma mailers and uh, with a, uh, um, some sort of survey method, you know, uh, to try to get us try to, to pull out, um, you know, opinions of residents that we generally don't hear from. I think that would be I'd love to see something like that. So, thank you. Other questions or comments? All right, will the clerk please call the vote? Okay, so Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember Mork. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. All right, the motion passes unanimously. Thank you, Mr. Bauer. Next up is action item 8C, action on federal legislative priorities. And I believe uh, Mr. Hammond is presenting along with a guest. Council. Uh, my name is Jim Hammond. I am uh, Intergovernmental Relations Manager for the City Manager's Office here at the City of Shoreline, and I am joined today by... I'm Jake Johnston. I'm the City's Federal Lobbyist with the Johnston Group. And we're here tonight to uh, present to you on the 2023 Federal Legislative Priorities. We'll try to go through this rather... If once I master the technology, anyway. Okay. Let's see if that doesn't work. There. So uh, we're here to essentially do a flyover for you of the legislative uh, priorities. These are, are 
our uh, priorities that, that have their roots in previous year's priorities for the city, so there's continuity, but they do evolve year after year as circumstances change, as the city hits benchmarks or things change in Washington, D.C. Um, one thing that I'm always struck about when you talk about federal priorities is they operate on a very different time scale than mostly what we're used to. I like to say that local problems get addressed in weeks or months, possibly years in the hard cases. State issues tend to get handled in biennia, if you can tackle them, or maybe two. And uh, rapid action, that would be rapid action in D.C. for many of our priorities, which can play out over a span of a decade, if you think about, say, the Aurora Avenue rebuild, as an example. So um, it is a slower timeline. It tends to evolve and change less um, dramatically year to year. But having said that, I think you'll see some changes this year. Now, overall, just as a, a primer, the role of legislative priorities are really they're clear statements from the council that allow staff to be fully aware of what's going on and, and how to respond to or evaluate legislation or other initiatives or requests from the federal delegation that come to the city of Shoreline. And, and so it's nimbleness, but it's guardrails. And that's what we are looking for you to you for guidance on. Um, it can also help with partnerships um, and, and identifying fellow travelers, fellow stakeholders with whom we can work. And we have worked with different coalitions of cities around the region and around the state in past years. And, and ideally, they eliminate any ambiguity and provide clarity so we kind of know where we're going. Uh, Jake uh, Johnston, as our federal lobbyist, has uh, comes from a career in Washington, D.C., and deep knowledge of sort of how that system works. And I'd like him to just take a few seconds to, to speak to this, this sense of the value of priorities from an operational point of view. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Uh, and thank you, Council. It's wonderful to be here tonight. Appreciate seeing all of you again. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that the city of Shoreline has done, uh, really over the last, boy, 15 years even, has been to persistently and consistently educate and partner with its congressional delegation to achieve city goals. And often we look to the federal government as a funding partner. That, that is the primary role that we, we really want them to have. But we try to have uh, a, a mutually positive relationship where we can provide resources and counsel and input on the policies that they're working on that fit the needs of our community in, in a distinct way. And at the same time, we try to bring projects forward that fit the very specific federal funding criteria that are established for grant programs or for funding support. And uh, the city's done, frankly, a phenomenal job of doing that over the, over the course of, of years. Sometimes we, we hit in a year and we miss in a year, but I think uh, the balance over a period of time has been a truly successful partnership between the city of Shoreline and its federal delegation. And we just got to celebrate, I think as the deputy mayor was referring to, uh, last year you know, there was $4 million that came to the city to invest in making sure that the, uh, the light rail station opening at 148th is truly accessible to residents of the community and to enhance and expand the walk shed of that light rail station. So, so that's, uh, uh, again, I just really appreciate the city's vision in doing this. I appreciate the city's willingness to show up at those events, to build those partnerships, to bring coalitions forward, and to look for ways to be, uh, uh, to be partners with the federal delegation. So just uh, over the course of the priorities that are attachment uh, A to the staff report today, we had a handful of different buckets that they sort of fell into. As, as Jake noted, federal funding is a critical piece of this. A couple of the short-term 
uh, things. Today, or actually tomorrow, we'll be submitting a raise grant for the 145th quarter and 148th bridge. RAISE is a major funding program that we have stayed very closely in contact with the feds on throughout this process. We also are working with uh, the partnership with Lake Forest Park on Ballinger Creek and funding that Representative Jayapal's office has helped us uh, initiate through the Water Resources uh, Development Act. And uh, we'll continue to work on the bridge funding um, courtesy of Representative Jayapal longer term. There are, uh, you know, going to be infrastructure and climate opportunities that have come out of the federal legislation of the last couple of years. Uh, we want to keep an eye on those. Some of our prime areas, I think, for future funding growth would be the trail along the rail in that in the station area, the 175th corridor, which you've heard plenty about, and the 185th station area, which is is a little more modest in scope to the 148th. So it's it reach it's one reason it gets that secondary attention. It's not the place that the region is going to come to to access light rail. Uh, any thoughts, Jake, or shall we keep rolling? No, let's keep rolling. Okay. So looking ahead, um, you know, beyond the the, um, the funding challenges, there's, there's this long-term horizon. And so we're already, it's 2023, we're looking at 2026, approximately when this Congress might come back to a reauthorization of a next transportation bill. This is a big sucker that they, they do every several years. And, and the, the exact time can, can shift by a year or two, but that would be sort of the anticipated next time they would reauthorize the transportation bill. So we're gonna continue to monitor and we're gonna continue to look at some of the key issues that we have been a consistent voice on throughout the past several years. In particular, uh, the medium city set aside, which we have worked with medium-sized cities in Oregon and Washington to advocate that more funding be sort of placed into that bucket it's been a central uh, focus of some of Jake's work as we work with other con congressional offices to sort of develop and help to provide local boots on the ground feedback to the policy they're developing in Washington. Yeah, if the council will indulge, maybe just a quick, uh, a little bit more context about that. Essentially, the, the medium-sized city set aside is a, a overly dramatic way to talk about a problem. And that problem is, do smaller and medium-sized cities have equitable access to federal infrastructure dollars? Do we have the ability to apply and do we have the ability to compete? Or are the scoring criteria set up in a way that disadvantages communities like ours? This has been kind of an experience that we felt as the city applied for raise grant uh, funding, oh my gosh, a decade ago on a, for the 145th corridor. And we were, we were consistently scored extraordinarily high from an economic impact statement but we just didn't have the population base necessary to win that grant funding when it got down to the screening level. So we have partnered with uh, other communities of a similar size and other similar growth dynamics to start to say we believe there should be a, a population band where, where funding in these federal grant programs needs to be set aside so that cities can compete against each other within those in an equitable format. But you shouldn't be competing with Chicago or LA, let alone Seattle and Tacoma you know, for, for, these, for these, uh, these critical infrastructure programs. And I'm pleased to say that in the last transportation bill, which passed in December of 20, and we're seeing the, imp uh, we're seeing the impacts of it now, that effort did not, we, we have not won this effort yet, but we did bend the curve. And by that I meant that for the first time, half of all the raise grant money was reserved for communities under 200,000 in population size. Now again, that's not the band that we are going for. 
but it's the first time that the federal government has acknowledged the fact that cities can't compete you know, when they look so different. And also cities like Shoreline have a limited amount of resources to apply for federal grants. Where Chicago can take a swing at kind of anything that comes out, we have a finite number of city staff that can really put these support efforts forward. So as a result of that, for the first time, the RAISE grant funded two medium-sized cities in Washington State last year. It's the first time that's ever happened. It was Linwood and Bothell. And that's why the city is preparing a RAISE grant this year, because we have got the perfect project. It's, it's the, the RAISE grant program is designed to do housing and economic development and the infrastructure investments necessary to connect housing to transit. And uh, there's, there's simply not a better story out there than what we are building around that 148th Street station. So the city's been working like gangbusters to meet this deadline, and we've got the full support of our delegation to go after this, this funding. Yeah. And kudos to the Public Works Department that has really put the effort in to make this happen. You know, Jake and I sort of fly air support, but they're they're doing the hard work uh, down there on the second floor. So other other issues that we like to uh, try to make sure we're, we're clearly on the same page with council on, uh, because there are opportunities for advocacy related to climate change, health insurance, uh, support for families, tax issues, salmon and watershed, um, other ways to invest in infrastructure, increased funding through block grant or home or other programs that uh, are direct allocations to cities to fund critical needs and and policies that are you know such as the equality act that that really support a safe healthy and inviting and equitable community for all so that that's the that really is the the priorities in a nutshell uh, and uh, we invite your review your questions and and potentially the adoption of these should you so choose all right, so this is an action item, and there's actually an opportunity for public comment. So I'm going to go ahead and open up the public comment period. My understanding is no one has signed up remotely. Is that accurate? Uh, that's correct. All right, and there is no one in the audience. Is there anyone online who would like to address this particular agenda item? If so, please raise your hand. No? Nope. All right, then I will close the public comment period, and with an action item, we generally start with a motion. Is there a motion? I've got all day, <laughs> Deputy Mayor. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. I move that we approve the 2023 federal legislative priorities. Second. Motion and a second. Would you like to speak to the motion? I will let my fellow council members jump in here on this one. Thanks. All right. Questions or comments or motions to amend? Council Member. Yeah, thank you, Mayor. Um, I've got a question you mentioned just at the end there that, that there's funds available for housing. I'm kind of wondering what types of uh, support uh, uh, money may be available to help uh, residents with like rental assistance, like a down payment, because we have there's like that's one of the barriers to, uh, for housing, especially for folks like coming from the Oaks to to uh, trying to find permanent housing is just having some uh, assistance with uh, you know first months and last months and a down payment. I'm wondering if there's if there's some funding available for something in that in that in that area to help out with uh, folks getting getting uh, permanent housing. Do you have a text? Uh, the answer is sort of, but not enough, uh, would be the, 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 the quick answer. Part of the problem is that um, these are federally established programs. So there's, there's, uh, there's a, a funding stream called the HOME program, there's CDBG, CDBG dollars, there's some other uh, initiatives that the city can apply for and receives on a formulaic grant. Whereas the eligible use of those funds include those types of decisions that council can make to allocate and prioritize the funding. The problem is that the amount of funding that you get 
is probably not enough to use that as, as one of the critical tools that you would want to bring forward into the community. So part of the challenge that we have is making sure that there's a big enough CDBG account or a big enough home account and that we don't and that we retain frankly local flexibility with the administration of those dollars and that that tends to be the policy argument uh, from a federal standpoint raise the amount of, of money in the budget number one and then ensure that local communities can have flexibility to utilize those dollars in ways that benefit their specific needs other questions or comments Councilmember Hobie. yeah each time we have grants coming up it's exciting, but I also think about capacity here. Just a few weeks ago, we discussed that in the room. And so I want to turn to the city manager. Do we have that person in yet? Do not. We had some challenges in being able to fill it um, based Someone on how it was approved. So we're looking at other avenues to um, hopefully successfully fill that position. Okay. <clears throat> Councilman Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Uh, I would like to thank the staff for putting together. It's all first good to see you. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> I'm smiling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I first want to thank you for some of the copy edits that I sent around uh, earlier this week. Um, makes this a sharper <laughs> document. Um, but I do have one question. I thought some uh, looking at the last item on the uh, on the agenda talks about red flag laws I were those passed already um, in the comp in the gun control measure that was that was passed uh, last session oh thank you I can't um, remember and uh, yeah they some of the red flag laws were were established as you know they're subject to judicial challenge at this point so we're still kind of waiting to see kind of what the outcome of it is I, I I, can we just put a flashing yellow light on this one? <laughs> okay, yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, I, we have to adopt something, but <laughs> that that's fine. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mayor. Deputy Mayor. Yeah, I just wanted to wrap up and say thank you both. I'm really proud of the priorities that we've established as a city, and uh, I feel like we are very well looked after. Um, and so thank you for being advocates for the city of shoreline you make a great duo here for the presentation um thank you for your work thank you other questions or comments all right i have one thing i don't i don't know that we need to move to amend to add it but i would like to put move a, a policy item onto the agenda for years and years to come and that's federal support for housing construction in in three big buckets permanent supportive workforce and then seniors um i was part of a small group of council members from across the, the the county who met with senator murray about a month and a half ago mm -hmm. um and i talked about raise grants and medium-sized set aside city set aside of course I and mean, that's that's sort of a a patter at this point um but i also mentioned affordable housing and how we're having a really hard time with 50 percent ami or below mm -hmm. and that really resonated i mean everybody there including the senator was like yeah we get it you just cannot afford to live in the puget sound region particularly in the seattle core um, if you make that much money and I have evolved personally in the 12 years I've been on planning commission in here between wanting us to find the right incentives to get private industry to construct it to thinking that's just not going to work. I mean, for that income level, it's going to have to be subsidized and probably built by government, not built with government workers necessarily, but built with government money. And I think there's a sense that that's true. And I would like to see us start advancing that as a discussion item. 
I learned a bit about sort of how it works, and I, I, I don't even know enough to be dangerous, but I don't have a let's push this particular policy agenda, but I do think we need to start bringing that up as one of our long-term needs unless something dramatic changes. Otherwise, we're going to become a city of upper-middle-class folks, and everybody else is going to have to move elsewhere. And again, I don't, I, I, I'm fine voting for this as is. I think we can start informally pushing it, and then hopefully in years to come, we can develop that. For it's already in the file here for 2024. Okay. All right. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Will the clerk please call the vote? Councilmember Mark. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. And Councilmember Poby. Aye. The motion carries unanimously. Thank you very much for all your work. Thank you. And our final uh, item is study item 9A, which is the annual traffic report. And I believe we have Ms. Dzinski and the captain. And Captain, now that my council members are laughing at me, I will apologize. Your name was not written down, and I've forgotten it. Oh, so please introduce yourself, and I apologize you. for addressing you only as the captain. Oh, no, thank you. I, <laughs> I actually like that, Dave, so. <laughs> He's returning from having been here before, but is relatively new to his new post, I believe, right? So I think it's, it's understandable. Okay, are we ready? All right, so uh, good evening, Council. Um, it's good to be here in person, it's been a while. Um, I'm Kendra Dodinsky, the City Traffic Engineer, and with me today is Captain Tim Meyer from the Shoreline Police Department. There we go. All right, um, adjust this a little bit. So, the objectives of our annual traffic report um, are to generally report on and track collision and other key traffic data trends. Uh, we use it to identify collision causal factors and priority locations. We use it to guide systemic or location-specific collision reduction strategies implemented through existing programs, so that could be our traffic safety capital project uh, program or even through existing operational enforcement uh, efforts. We use it to inform larger scale projects for consideration as part of the transportation improvement plan or the capital improvement plan. And we use it to guide uh, safety related grant pursuits. So uh, showing here is a just our, our, our broad summary of collision uh, incidents over the last 10 years. And so you can see uh, in 2021, there were a total of 382 collisions reported on shoreline streets. Uh, we uh, experienced one fatality and 10 serious injuries. So while the overall trend is down over the last couple of years, um, which really started during the pandemic, uh, concerningly the injury collisions are remaining quite high, especially when you take into consideration the total number of collisions being on kind of, you know, in, in a, a lower, lower number than prior years. All right, so expanding on that, uh, the injury collisions still on the rise, as I noted, um, and in fact, in 2021, uh, highest point in our 10-year analysis window. 
the trajectory for serious and fatal collisions, even kind of more concerningly almost, uh, remains also on the rise. So in 2021, we saw that kind of dip down to more average levels. Uh, but given the last couple of years of, of data prior to 2021, that trajectory is still really headed in the wrong direction. And this is something we're seeing, you know, region-wide, nationwide even, which we'll dig into more now. So looking at the regional comparison, we see that uh, our rate of serious and fatal injury collisions per 100,000 population, um, it remains lower than the county and the state uh, overall but the trajectory of kind of the rate of increase year by year is kind of on par with the counties. Um, and then when we dig a little deeper into kind of comparing to similarly sized cities, Shoreline ranks uh, third highest uh, among those cities in terms of the rate per 100,000 population. Uh, can, uh, continuing the compare, regional comparison, this year we provided some information on the um, relationship between median household income and rate of fatal and serious injury collision. We saw a pretty strong correlation. And you know the, the causal factors behind uh, the serious and fatal injury collision rates for each city are, are multifactorial, no doubt about that. But this provides us with some interesting context at least to start considering holistically. All right, looking at pedestrian and bicyclist collisions, um, this was one uh, silver lining, I suppose, or encouraging piece of data. We saw that in 2021, our ped and bike collisions accounted for um, the lowest level in our 10-year analysis window, uh, which is good news. And then also encouragingly, the pedestrian collisions, uh, the trajectory is trending down year by year, which is great to see. Uh, that's headed in the right direction, and it follows along with the bike collisions that started on that path last year. So that's some overall good news. All right, uh, looking at target zero contributing factors. And so to preface this, uh, target zero is the Washington State uh, Strategic Highway Safety Plan for achieving zero fatal and serious injury collisions on public roadways. And so they identify some top priorities based on the data. And the data shows for our city of those priorities, the top two are intersection related collisions uh, or intersections being a factor in collisions and then also pedestrian and bicyclists being involved in those serious and fatal injury collisions with driver distraction and lane departure also following in that kind of high up there in the distribution. Um, and so for example, this is helpful in terms of identifying systemic or holistic safety improvements that can come in the form of policies um, or even kind of broader improvements. We are currently working on design for a number of crossing improvements, for example, which would overlap in terms of that intersection-related and pedestrian-related collision uh, factor there. Okay, so uh, the next few slides will talk about location-based analysis. Um, starting broadly here, we are, we are showing uh, collisions by street class. Uh, and so what we see is that um, arterials, which comprise just 27% of our roadway centerline miles, really account for the vast majority of our injury and pedestrian collisions. Uh, you can see on the infographic there the 94% of pedestrian collisions and 92% of serious and fatal collisions occur on arterial streets. And um, this is important because essentially it means that we can hone in on a small number of streets and really uh, kind of get the most benefit out of doing that. So by focusing our attention there, we, we get the most bang for our buck. 
Uh, we do continue, of course, to receive concerns about traffic calming um, from, from folks uh, throughout the city, and we will continue to respond to those concerns um, using data to guide our potential actions, but certainly uh, addressing striping or signing or lighting issues uh, you know, on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis as warranted. But in general, with the limited resources that we have, uh, both in terms of staff and funding, uh, it is important for us to stay focused on the data when we're going ahead and making physical improvements. Okay, uh, looking at state highway collisions. So uh, these are called out because they account for a pretty high proportion of our injury collisions overall in the city. You'll see in 2021, about 35% of the injury collisions were along state routes. That includes uh, Aurora Avenue and Ballinger Way. Um, so we've just sort of relatively recently, let's say, uh, completed our Aurora Corridor improvement projects. And so, uh, you know, it's it's uh, easy to feel like we've, we've done our job, we walk away, um, but I, it, it's great to stay focused and this data helps us to do that on the iterative process of transportation safety. Um, so as a result, uh, we are planning to implement uh, leading pedestrian interval phasing at multiple intersections to address some pedestrian-related collisions. Uh, we started on that path a couple of years ago. Um, we've had staffing shortages and technical difficulties, but we will get that rolling this year. Um, we also plan to review the speed limits uh, in either 2023 or 2024. Uh, that's kind of on the heels of the methodology we used uh, this um, it past June when we implemented uh, speed limit changes based on a new methodology, which we feel pretty confident about moving forward with uh, for additional study now. Um, uh, we'll note that we would not make any changes, uh, obviously, until we come before council with um, more robust discussion. Uh, and then last, we have identified for the last several cycles now Ballinger, uh, a, a corridor corridor project for Ballinger uh, in the transportation improvement plan, um, noting there have not been any, you know, substantive improvements on that corridor or the intersections kind of uh, flanking that corridor for a long time now. And with all the busy driveways uh, and lack of access control, there's, there's certainly room for improvement there. So that will move forward in the transportation improvement plan as an unfunded project uh, this cycle again, which I believe is coming soon. All right, so looking at locations. Um, so as we noted uh, earlier, intersections are, you know, one of the main places to focus in on in terms of our hotspots for, for collisions and in terms of potential mitigation strategies. <clears throat> so for that process, we use um, a cutoff point of looking at an average, uh, intersections experience an average of three collisions per year or more. And so uh, to help you read this table, uh, and it's consistent with the, the report itself, uh, but there are <coughs> red, yellow, excuse me for a second. <coughs> My voice has been rough for about a month now, so bear with me. Uh, red, yellow, and green balls, and those indicate either you know a, a, an improvement over last report cycle, staying the same, or, um, or, or that there have been more collisions since last report out. And then uh, the X's here, just for kind of conciseness on this slide, but uh, is indicating that we've either um, taken action relatively recently on, on this uh, location that uh, we will be soon, or is, it's part of an active CIP project. And so kind of going down this list, we have Meridian and 175th, which is actively in design right now. 
uh, which I think all council is aware. Midville and 175th, we have some signal phase changes underway as part of last annual traffic reports cycle. Uh, Meridian and 185th, we were recently awarded some grant funding for improved delineation through that intersection. Um, we'll be monitoring for additional uh, signal improvements in the future as well. Uh, 10th Avenue and 175th Street, as well as 8th Avenue and 175th Street are um, you know, on the same corridor. Last cycle, we talked to council about a potential four to three lane conversion, uh, which council gave the okay for us to kind of pursue grant funding. So we'll be doing that in 2024. Um, and we'll conduct outreach before really expending any grant funds to ensure we have community buy-in. Uh, 15th and 175th has had some relatively recent improvements, but we actually have an active contract underway to install some C-curb for limiting access at the northern Safeway driveway, which we've done outreach on. Um, but that should help kind of clarify or eliminate some conflicts at that driveway uh, and just allow drivers to focus on the intersection actions. Uh, 3rd Avenue Northwest and Richmond Beach Road, um, we've somewhat recently improved as part of that rechannelization project. Uh, and it's kind of remaining stable, so we're, we're monitoring for now. Um, Dayton 160th, we reviewed for signal phase changes, and uh, so far it doesn't meet warrants, so we're going to continue to monitor, monitor that one. Uh, and Ashworth and 185th has some improvements coming up in the form of uh, pedestrian-activated push buttons. All right, uh, moving into the segments. So this is what we look at in, in between the intersections, so any roadway segment between intersections. Uh, gets kind of categorized differently or uh, analyzed differently. Uh, and we looked at look at half-mile segments. And um, outside of state routes, this was the one that kind of rose to the top of the list, uh, 15th between 196th and Ballinger. And uh, a lot of those were vehicles, errant vehicles, kind of hitting parked cars or running off the road. And so we're planning to install a white edge line this year on both sides of the road to help with delineation. Hopefully that will help with some of those collisions or bring that number down. Okay, moving to pet and bike collisions. So we didn't have any location with more than two bike collisions in the five-year period, which is good to see. Um, for the three remaining uh, regarding ped collisions, 20th and 196th Street, we have some improvements coming with our sidewalk program. Uh, they'll be rebuilding some, some uh, corners for lower turning speeds and for reducing ped crossing distances at that intersection uh, and generally bringing it in compliance with ADA standards. Uh, we'll also be installing some lighting. Aurora and 185th, I uh, think I, well, I don't think I talked about it today. Uh, we will be installing leading pedestrian interval phasing um, in the near future, so that's one, one of the items on our work plan this year. And then Midvale and 185th, after we're done with this next, uh, or this, this first batch of signal phasing changes, we will evaluate this one, um, but for this cycle, we're gonna monitor as this one's new, um, but we might consider flashing yellow arrow operation in the future, which would be a, an improvement over the green ball. So if you get a green ball, you may be not as aware that you need to yield, um, even though you should. Uh, the yellow arrow helps draw driver attention to that yielding behavior, or yielding requirement, I should say. Okay, so systemic collision reduction strategies. So some of the things that we're doing kind of holistically throughout the city to uh, really try to get at that uh, target zero goal, we are uh, year by year continuing to improve our design strategies for injury reduction. So um, iteratively improving our engineering design manual. 
we've included new standards for things like um, curb bulb-outs to reduce pedestrian crossing distances, uh, you know, in, in practically every intersection where we can, uh, better organizing parking, uh, calling for increased lighting standards, uh, you know, narrower lane widths for lower speeds. So lots of good things that we've done over the last several years to really uh, get at that, you know, building streets for future conditions that uh, drive lower speeds. Uh, we are setting appropriate speeds, so we are continuing to review uh, speed limits like I talked about. So in addition to Aurora and Ballinger, we are also going to be looking at our remaining 35 mile per hour corridors that we didn't study last time. Um, increased street lighting and pedestrian lighting. So we uh, continue to um, install 10 new street lights per year within our budget. And then on, on top of that, of course, there's um, a host of new lights going in as part of developer and capital uh, projects um, per our engineering standards. Uh, driver education is a big part of my program. We, we um, the, the radar speed feedback cart that moves around the city is a, a popular item. Um, it's something that we coordinate with uh, a lot of folks on over the year. And in addition, we're going to be um, designing some yard signs for, for um, the community to utilize. Uh, if you've seen Seattle's or Bellevue's or other communities, they have kind of community-centric um, educational signs, you know, kind of uh, asking neighborhoods, neighbor, or drivers to uh, travel, you know, more slowly through their neighborhood because they care. And that can work, too, for, for a certain body of uh, drivers. And then uh, last but certainly not least, enforcement is a critical part of our collision, our ongoing collision reduction strategy from a systemic basis. Um, reporting on progress, as I've already talked about a couple of times, we lowered some speed limits uh, after doing, doing a, a study in June 2022. I will report back on progress on that uh, next cycle. It's not been quite long enough to collect the data and kind of synthesize that, um, but I will do that next cycle. Uh, we have made some progress on the leading pedestrian interval implementation. Hope to get some of that done by the end of the year. Uh, we are at 100% design on two grant safety projects. So that's uh, specifically targeted toward traffic safety. Um, those will be installing a number of new uh, pedestrian activated flashing beacons and improving crossings at multiple locations throughout the city. We received a grant award of 625000 for a safety project on Meridian. Uh, that kind of extends the segment that's under uh, design right now between 155th and 175th. And, um, you know, the, the driver education I just talked about, our radar speed feedback sign, which we rotate around uh, on, you know, routine basis, uh, as well as develop, worked with uh, Shoreline PD to develop a parking uh, warning outreach, so postcard that they can put on cars to help drivers understand how and why they are parking illegally um, so that they might learn and not repeat that mistake. Uh, and then last, of course, various uh, capital improvement projects and developer and implemented improvements will, will help us uh, achieve safer streets over time. All right, and I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Captain Meyer to talk on the enforcement components. Sure, so as the graphic shows here, we're definitely seeing a uh, decline in overall uh, you know, infractions that were issued. Uh, certainly public safety, like so many other industries, has you know, weathered some staffing challenges. And so Shoreline's dedicated traffic unit, which at its peak consisted of five dedicated officers, was folded back in so we could make sure that we were responsive to our 911 calls. And I think that's certainly the number one uh, factor that really attributes to uh, seeing a decrease in infractions. Uh, warnings, we're always mindful. We want, uh, you know, we started 
first days of the academy, we talk about the three E's, engineering, enforcement, and education. We often will try and use warnings first. Uh, we appreciate that traffic infractions are expensive. They're, in some cases, can be pretty punitive. And so uh, oftentimes, uh, I think of my own time when I was on patrol, even here in Shoreline, we sought warnings as a way to try and uh, you know, really modify driver behavior. Uh, but I think certainly seeing the reduction of that traffic unit, um, again, allowed for faster 911 response. But as the graph shows, that did result in uh, fewer infractions. So certainly touching on abandoned vehicles and parking, this is an extension of our traffic unit. So traffic does far more than just moving violations. We have one sergeant for whom this is a dedicated ancillary duty. And uh, certainly under his direction, very focused on parking. Uh, much of that can be driven by areas where we see uh, hotspots, if you will. Right now, the Westminster Triangle being one of those. And so we'll identify where we're seeing whether it be fire lane or other issues, and those will drive that to parking enforcement. Um, and then certainly abandoned vehicles. We see that as being a public safety uh, issue. We want to make sure that uh, we keep Shoreline the great community that it is and that it doesn't become a place where abandoned or derelict vehicles um, are just left on the streets. And so uh, that certainly remains an emphasis for us. Sergeant Akers has been a real leader uh, amongst our team in, in driving that and making sure, again, we do it through a lens of equity. We want to be fair and try and find resolutions, but there are times where simply impounds and ticketing uh, are really the last resort. All right. And uh, just a few, few more slides left, and then we can get to the discussion. Um, but certainly speeding, we work together um, in, in terms of using data to focus emphasis patrols for um, speeding enforcement. And so traffic services collects speeding data throughout the year and uh, synthesize that into a map. Um, so you can see here, for example, the red and orange represent um, streets where we measured a 85th percentile speed, uh, which is to say the, the speed at which 85% of uh, traffic is tra traveling at or below. Uh, that is more than eight miles per hour over the posted speed limit. So those are areas that, for example, the Shoreline PD can then uh, spend some time um, doing some emphasis patrols, outreach, warning, uh, and enforcement. Traffic volumes uh, are regularly collected at eight locations throughout the city. Uh, the aggregate volumes are shown in this table. Um, so in general, daily and PM volumes are returning to, you know, approximately pre-pandemic levels. Um, but interestingly, uh, the AM, PM, AM peak volumes uh, are quite a bit lower than pre-pandemic. Um, and while that initially was a little surprising, uh, in thinking through why that might be, it, it becomes less so. Uh, we did see the, that in our um, resident survey, you know, something like 26% of, of folks are, are choosing to work remotely or some hybrid schedule. And so my, my theory is that folks probably are not traveling as re regularly and routinely in the morning PM or morning peak. Uh, but some of the after-school and after-work activities have kind of returned back to normal, and so you're seeing kind of more normal volumes during the PM peak. That's my theory anyway. I'm sticking with it. All right. Uh, transit. So uh, kind of similar. We're, we're seeing uh, transit volumes start to rebound a little bit, but they're still well below pre-pandemic levels, um, as you're seeing that spring 2022 report there. Um, so I think that's, you know, probably also a reflection of some of the hybrid and um, remote work that's happening. And with that, we are at our point of questions. Questions on this study item? Councilmember. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I, I think all of us appreciate this report. I mean, it's one of the, high, I think, 
I won't necessarily say it's a highlight of the year, but it's sort of a very uh, good snapshot of the our infrastructure and uh, police enforcement and how those two uh, work together. One of the things I've noticed is that, especially looking at the speed differential charts, and this I double checked uh, going back all the way now to 2013 and probably even before that, is there's one sec uh, segment that always is on the list at the highest rate, and that's Carlisle Hill Road. Um, other other roads uh, segments, I mean, go off and on the sort of the top <laughs> tier. Uh, but Carlisle Hill sort of always make and has always made the list and always makes the list at one of the highest, if not the highest. At, I don't think it's been clocked at under 10 miles an hour over um, at least since 2013. So I think the question here is, I mean, I understand there's limitations on enforcement. So is there ways and is there... And, to, do we have to do something around reconfiguring that roadway or doing something to make that road less inviting as a speedway? Because, I mean, if people, if you're seeing 80th percentile speeds of 35, 36 miles an hour, that's, I mean, especially in that curvy road and it's dark <laughs> on that road, I mean, it's not safe for a pedestrian, it's not safe for a bicyclist. Um, fortunately, we have not seen the collision data. I mean, fortunately, we don't have too many collisions that we've noted. Um, and I don't think there's been any pedestrian bike collisions, but I mean, this is a segment that is sort of screaming for work. Can you, do you have any information that you can give us? I mean, is there something we can do to reconfigure, again, can we reconfigure that roadway in some way to make it safer? Yeah, good question. I, I know going back in the data, I, I see that consistently too. So I, I, I know how that kind of stuck, sticks out as, as a consistent, um, you know, hotspot, if you will. Uh, it happens to be, you know, very close to where I live. So very familiar with the roadway. I travel it probably daily uh, as a walker, biker, and driver. But uh, yeah, I think it, it's a bit complex in that you don't have um, any access, meaning there's no driveways along one side of the roadway, which I think can tend to invite some higher speeds. Unfortunately, uh, it also lacks sidewalks on one side, so that can tend to invite higher speeds as well when you're not kind of curbed in to, let's say, narrower lanes. Um, it is interesting, given the, the um, curvature of the roadway, as you noted, to see the higher speeds because you're kind of going into curves in which it's quite difficult to travel um, at those speeds at certain parts of the times of the year. So, uh, But in terms of what strategies we might use to address it, I think um, certainly... Uh, enforcement is an element of it. Uh, I know there used to be uh, enforcement emphases there pretty routinely. Um, I have never gotten a, a stopped yet, and I've lived there for 15 years, so I'm like feeling pretty lucky about that. But no, uh, really though, note, yeah, Captain? your point to to, <laughs> to uh, whether there's engineering strategies for. Um, you know, addressing speeds. I think, realistically, things like sidewalks um, and, uh, uh, you know, narrowing the lane widths a little bit, those might be strategies that we, we could employ, but there aren't a lot of opportunities for, you know, intersection treatments that can tend to slow folks down. And it's also an arterial, and it's actually a fairly important one to that, you know, neck of the woods. So things like speed humps might not be an appropriate solution in that respect. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's a good question. I don't have a, a clear strategy for you other than I think enforcement is, is one key solution. But, um, but yeah, certainly uh, future improvements like sidewalks and, and lane narrowing could be an effective strategy. Thank you. That's a, I mean, I think all we can expect at this point. Um, my second question involves uh, right turns on red. And I know that there's been some work um, in the legislature on this, that bill's not going anywhere. But some of the stuff that the advocates for that legislation are really saying is that right turns on red are very problematic. Um, they're very dangerous for pedestrians. Um, I, know some of the intersections that uh, when I regularly run uh, stopping is uh, well a uh, many drivers don't believe in stopping <laughs> um, not necessarily our jurisdiction but uh, when we think about sort of safety has have we as a city considered banning right turnouts on red and is that something as a strategy that we should consider looking at um, as a council to make sure, especially on, I mean, on Aurora, but also all, at all our signalized intersections, is this something that we need to really take a look at? Because all the data that I've seen looking at that, the advocate says, yes, we, this is something we need to do, or we need to do, I mean, maybe not every intersection, but I mean, really most intersections, there should be some sort of uh, prohibition on rights on red. Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know it's an important point, policy point, right? Systemic point to bring up uh, as you know a strategy toward what can we do to kind of comprehensively make things safer, especially for pedestrians. And I think the reason we haven't seen a lot of action on it yet is because it's a bit mixed. Um, really depends on case by case scenario, like everything else. And I will say that we do employ right turn on red restrictions in our city um, when it's warranted. And so if I were to see, for example. Um, a high occurrence of that type of collision occurring, especially with pedestrians or bicyclists in particular, um, that would be a strategy I would I would absolutely recommend and employ as part of this annual traffic report review. So far, um, most of the we and I should say I, I dive pretty deep into the pedestrian and bike collisions specifically to see you know what was the specific movement at this intersection that happened to result in a collision. And often it's left turns. Um, the right turn hook is also, uh, you know, does happen. Um, I would say it happens more often on the concurrent green, though. So as you know, um, when you receive a walk signal, it, there's a, an adjacent lane that's also receiving a green. And so that right turn um, corresponds with the movement of the pedestrian or the bicyclist in some cases. And so the right turn on red you know, uh, prohibi prohibition does not inherently reduce or remove that conflict. It can eliminate a sort of split-second conflict where um, the light turns green for the pedestrian um, and the driver's looking left and trying to take their, their right turn on red. So it does, to some degree, mitigate that. Um, but point being that we do review for that uh, pot uh, potential application as it relates to both vehicle and ped bike collisions. So um, what else will I say about that? I think we have uh, removed some right turn on red restrictions in some cases and actually seen a decrease in collisions at a couple of locations, which is an interesting outcome. Um, the other thing to consider is that the enforcement component comes into play. And you'll see at 175th and I-5, for example, a lot of folks don't necessarily obey the right turn on red restriction. And so, you know, signs are only as good as they can be for people that 
in terms of people obeying them, right? And people do not always obey the signs. And so uh, whether the enforcement burden of that kind of widespread restriction is realistic uh, to expect compliance with, I don't, I don't know. Um, but it is, it, it can tend to result in, um, you know, a, a resource drain in terms of the enforcement component as well. Um, yeah. Well, and certainly there's an education component that needs to come into it yeah. as well. Um, I know, I can't remember the last time I saw someone at 175th actually turn right on the red, so. That's good to hear. But that's my anecdote. <laughs> but the idea, I mean, you mentioned about sort of uh, walk signals. I mean, one of the things that I have heard also that seemed to work is giving the pedestrian uh, the uh, walk signal for a couple seconds before the main traffic turns red or turns green is another way of sort of on that particular topic and, or issue seems to work. So yeah. I appreciate all the comments here and it sounds like right turns on red is a good policy discussion for all of us to have. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Other questions or comments? Deputy Mayor. Um, thank you. Uh, when I moved here, uh, I guess 20 years ago, it took me a long time to get used to that no turn. I was on autopilot, and I got I got stopped taking a right on red, I-5, 175th. Anyway, um, I wanted to drill down on 175th, specifically, you know, the 8th and 10th intersections. It's in the report. We have talked about a, a lane reduction strategy there, and I have already heard quite a bit of feedback from the community. One of the questions or one of the comments that have, has come my way is that for the better part of a year, and I'd love to know just how long it was, there was a significant construction project right there between those two intersections. Uh, and the community's feeling is that that caused such a visual distraction that that led to the in, much of the increase of the, uh, the collisions at those intersections. So that is some feedback that I'm getting. I don't know if uh, this data is longer than a year, of course, um, but I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about what's causing, why those are problematic, um, why it's more than, potentially more than a single construction project may have caused. Yeah. I. Um the data does go back further than a year, and certainly um, 10th and 175th in particular has been on the list for longer than that, so it predates the construction activity. Um, whether or not construction activity could have contributed to recent collisions, and particularly around 8th, um, I don't know. I haven't seen that in the data, per se. Uh, I do know that at 10th and 175th, there has been a very high occurrence extremely high occurrence of red light running mm -hmm. uh, and I it's a little baffling honestly I've not seen such high numbers of red light running we did adjust our clearance intervals to try to account for some of that and just didn't, haven't seen the numbers come down yet um, I think in part uh, and I think you're familiar with driving the corridor but during certain types times of the day that Sun can really bear down on that corridor and cause some glare um, but I think too it's it's a pretty wide open corridor for most of the day um, which can really encourage higher speeds. And so I think that has something to do with it as well. Um, it, it feels pretty wide open and pretty pretty easy to drive fast down that road, in my, in, at least in my experience. Um, and so something like a four to three lane conversion um, can help all times of the day because it helps with the prudent driver setting the speed. It also creates less conflicts, right? Less turning movement conflicts. You have a place to turn into and out of, uh, to and from the corridor. 
So from 8th, that's great because you don't have a signal at 8th um, to be able to receive uh, an exclusive right of way to make that turn. So uh, it addresses a number of issues, including speed, including turning movements and reduced conflicts. It also creates a, a bigger buffer between pedestrian and bicyclists. Bicyclists was hit on the corridor not too long ago. Um, so yeah, I think it's multifactorial. Um, I, I don't think it's strictly construction related, but I, I don't know that there's any you know one factor we could change you know beyond some more systemic corridor improvements that would make a dent in the numbers either. So, thank you. Other, Councilor Pope. Thank you. I, I have always appreciated your work, and especially the graphics. You know, highlighting what the details are. You've made some uh, proposals or suggestions of things that are supposed to be implemented in the in the coming year, and I was just wondering because the data is from 2019 through 2021. Yes. Is that current? Because out of those years, two were when people were not mostly on the road, and so I was thinking it would be you know efficient. No, it would be reasonable to use more current data, like from 2022. And all that, so I was just wondering why that. Yeah, we um, we tend to look at a three-year cycle just because our sample size at any one given intersection or location tends to be relatively small. We're not a huge city, um, so it's hard harder to make correlations uh, on a kind of annual basis, if you will, without looking at a, a larger aggregate of numbers. Um, it's something that I'm looking to build. Uh, a lot of cities with with the availability of um, more geolocated and electronic police uh, report data. It makes for uh, easier transition to kind of dashboard style reporting, and I am looking into that this year. Um, we're, we're moving in that direction, and that would allow for uh, certainly kind of picking things apart year by year and doing an, an, you know, any, any number of filters to try to look at different factors in, in our collisions, uh, collision trends on any uh, given cycle. So that will, will help get that kind of data to you eventually when we get that set up. Um, but yeah, in general, we have been doing a three-year cycle just to, to kind of normalize the data a little bit because of the low sample size, if you will. Other questions? Councilmember Mark. Thank you. Uh, I too would like to echo, I really appreciate the thoroughness of your report. It's easy to read and understand. Is target zero, the, excuse me, target you're right. Target zero yeah. and vision zero the same? Yeah, effectively the same. There are different kind of tweaks on the same principle, yes. Yeah, so um, the state plan is called target zero, but some cities have um, branded theirs as vision zero. They're effectively working toward the same goal, though, of injury minimization um, and really working toward zero fatal and injury collisions and use, using data and, and proven safety countermeasures to achieve that. So our, our plan does its best to align with those strategies. Okay. Yep. Thank you. I got a little confused with that. Yep. Recently, there was an article in the Seattle Times that talked about how Seattle was failing to meet, uh, whichever one you want to call that target yeah. or vision. Vision zero. Yep. Uh, do you think Shoreline is meeting? Do, do I feel like Shoreline is failing, meeting the, the goals of... Yeah, fa fa yeah. You know, failing like... Seattle is, or are we in better or worse shape, or how, how do you feel? I think that's a little hard to quantify in terms of comparable between cities. We're pretty different contexts, but I would say regionally, 
we are definitely headed in the wrong direction. We see that in you know regional and statewide numbers, and not to mention nationwide numbers. There's just been a real uptick in risky driving over the last several years, and I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but I would say regionally, we're, we're yeah we're inherently failing in some way because the the line is going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, I really like the signs that uh, you had. That um, it, are you saying that citizens? Who, you know, I got I live on a street where people have the the little slowdown kids yeah, here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's that that same kind of sign. Is that something that those signs would be available for the public to obtain? Yeah. Is that the thinking? In yeah, the absolutely. Term? And I think. Um, you know, what, what those signs can do, too, is they can show that the community is invested in their neighborhood, and I think that sends a really strong message, right? And um, it, it can definitely be effective in terms of reminding drivers, especially those that are responsible, to, you know, take note of their speed and slow down. Um, yeah. So, yes, they would be available to the community. Oh, mm -hmm. perfect, because I, I really do think those are effective. I agree with yeah. you. I think that's a, a great thing. The Seattle Times article... Uh, talked at some length about where they felt the failures were in the city of Seattle, and I appreciate they're not the same. Sure. Um, but one of the things that they really uh, pressed on is that they felt that they weren't taking enough uh, input from the community members about issues on their streets. And the way I read the report, and perhaps I misunderstood, was the city of Shoreline has taken the perspective that due to our staffing levels and how we do things, that really uh, that we're not in the position to take too much input from people who are on the 73% of streets that aren't arterial, where most of those calls from instead of the arterials. Do you, could you comment upon your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a good observation. and. And I think it, it hits on something I wanted to talk about, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so in general, I would say we are a very responsive and customer-oriented city, and we we do not um, ignore our, our resident base or you know our community members uh, at all. We we receive I think over 400 uh, traffic safety concerns in a given year, which is a lot of concerns, um, and we try to answer every single one of them. Um, whatever that might mean. And so, as I noted, sometimes that means signing or striping changes or lighting improvements. And I think in a on a local street setting, that can actually go a long way in some cases, uh, especially when paired with uh, community education signs, right, like we were just talking about, or the radar speed cart. Those can be really effective and appropriate tools for local streets. But in general, um, you know, physical improvements uh, for local streets are tricky. Um, if you go about placing a speed hump on somebody's street that didn't show to have a collision problem in the first place, it does call into question why you would choose to do that as opposed to address a, a spot that has routinely year after year shown itself to have collisions. Uh, and it also uh, causes other kind of unintended consequences because if you put a speed hump on somebody's street, the next street over gets the rerouted traffic and then they have a problem, right? So. Um, when we're trying to think more systemically and holistically and using data to, to guide our, our investments and our um, implementation strategies, focusing on those types of devices is not particularly effective in my opinion. Um, but uh, I think that there are there's more we can do, uh, I think, in, in, both in terms of local streets and arterial streets of kind of 
Uh, again, that element of designing for injury minimization is important. We are growing uh, rapidly, as you may have noticed, and um, I think that there is more that our industry or engineering industry can do to be proactive about safety measures. We are always reactive, and that is not ideal, and I think that's what a lot of community members feel kind of, you know, that, that's kind of the, the gut reaction is like, why do, why do we have to wait for something bad to happen before we do something? And I, I totally understand that, that feeling uh, that resonates. Um, so part of what we're going to be doing this year is evaluating, at least for um, our growth areas, uh, some measures that we can take to sort of quantify thresholds for safety improvements as part of our transportation impact analyses required of devel development and try to tie improvements uh, directly to preventative safety measures. Um, so there are predictive safety um, uh, metrics that, that we can use and, and apply. Uh, the industry has not typically done that, um, but I think that that's the right thing to focus on. So that's where we're going to start looping that into our uh, analysis process here in the coming year. Um, so that's one thing we're trying to, to start working toward proactivity because we have been a historically reactive uh, industry when it comes to safety. That makes me so happy. Thank you. I love that answer. Any other questions or comments? Councilman yeah, actually, I, I had a couple on the move back to Councilman Roberts. Um, the, the chart that draw my attention was the tra traffic citations and criminal case filings. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that we went from 5,300 down to 641, given a lot of factors. That, that mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Um, and I do want to talk about the traffic unit in a minute. But what also struck my attention is 2012, we had 470 criminal filings. 2021, we had 66. And that's, that, that's DUI, hit and run, reckless. It's also DWLS. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, what percentage so how much of that is driving while license suspended, which quite frankly I don't care about, and right. how much of that is the hit and run in DUI, which if folks are getting away with that, then that's a big staffing concern. Yeah. Uh, so, Mayor, we have those numbers broken out, and I can certainly get back to you on okay. that in terms of how they are. We certainly did see a big change in DWLS 3, as we know the state, um, for many things, they've reversed those and reinstated many licenses. So we did see a, a drop in what was traditionally our lowest level of criminal citation, the suspended third. Um, and so we would have to do a breakout on that to find out which of those are you know, impaired driving, uh, revoked first or second. Uh, yeah. Get that information to you. I don't, I don't think we need it this year, but I, I would like us to track that going forward. Because okay. that, 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 it's a very meaningful number to me, how many DUIs, because with a growing population, there's no way that, that drunk driving went down by that mm -hmm. much. It's, right, it's, it's quite possible that our police staffing issues are starting to impact that. Um, and I want to talk a minute about the traffic unit. And I, I apologize for springing a question on Mr. Ellingson and Mr. Norris. Um, but one of the things we've been looking at is moving, moving uh, parking away from sworn officers. And for me, that's, a, that's an obvious thing to do. I mean, I just, that's a job we don't need Sergeant Akers to be doing. That's a job we can have non-sworn people doing, which frees up patrol officers to hopefully reconstruct our traffic unit. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I, I can't remember exactly when I moved here, 2010, somewhere in there, but traffic enforcement was everywhere. Mm -hmm. And one of the warnings I got is drive carefully in shoreline. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked. I mean, I, you know, I, it, folks were driving differently. I drove differently. I crossed the city line and I'd slow down. Um, that's not the feel anymore. I mean, traffic enforcement just isn't there. And I, I understand it's nationwide, but the driving behaviors I'm seeing don't surprise me anymore, but they would have surprised me when I first moved here. I mean, there really is a de-policing sense, and I would love to reverse that trend. We're only going to reverse it if we're not down 10 sworn officers, or if we find a way to free up 
sworn officers from doing things they don't have to be doing. So, so the, the question for any of you is, where do we stand on the on the parking ticket program, the ticket? Yeah, so as council knows, we're in the midst of developing a, a parking enforcement program. And so I think by the time light roll opens as the intent, I think by the end of 2024, we hope to have them kind of hit the ground and running. I don't know if John has more information on this but than I do at this point, but um, I, I do think that the intent is to have those be non-sworn officers, um, but still working obviously closely with um, our police department and, and my department and, and community response team as well. No, right, it's just yeah. that some of those calls, I mean, if, yeah. if it's an abandoned vehicle that may or may not be a residence, that's a lot of time. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just a lot to deal with. And I, I don't, I mean, everything's a priority, but it seems to me that given how short staff we are on sworn, if we can expedite that a little bit, that might be a, a, a short-term solution. Mr. Norris, did you have a comment? Good evening, Council. Uh, John Norris, Assistant City Manager. Yeah, um, we have asked uh, Christina Arcity in the City Manager's Office to actually lead the development of the Parking Enforcement Program, uh, and obviously working closely with uh, with Ms. Sadinsky, um, our code enforcement customer response team, where the parking enforcement officers will be housed, um, and of course, uh, the Shoreline Police Department. Uh, the intention is that uh, those parking enforcement officers would be working on um, uh, really the abandoned vehicle issues, uh, all the things that you just mentioned, Mayor. Um, right now, that is a strong partnership between uh, our code enforcement staff and um, our traffic unit of one, Sergeant Akers, that uh, Captain Meyer mentioned. Um, I think it it will. It, we're the team, as far as I understand, is still unpacking what sort of authority uh, parking enforcement officers would have, with specifically with regard to impounds. So there are some state statutes, um, but when we impound a vehicle, uh, whether we would be able to do that, or that still would need to live within the police department. Um, but all of those issues are being uncovered. So. Yeah, we can let police do police work and let the parking enforcement staff take on as much of that role uh, as possible. And again, our code enforcement customer response team now do almost all of the initial um, parking enforcement. So they're doing initial t um, stickering, if you will, identifying that a vehicle is uh, improperly parked or inoperable uh, in the in the right of way. So that will continue, and we hope to, you know, expand that so that the city staff, as you said, Mayor, are doing as much work as possible, allowing police to focus on uh, enforcement and all the other things you've heard about tonight. Thank you. Councilman Roberts. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, I know last year we, as a council, had a very good and made some policy changes around level of service moving to, especially around our uh, light rail station areas. Thinking about, but I want to sort of go back and sort of think think about how level of service plays in with traffic safety for a moment even because I mean level of service is designed for moving vehicles sort of free flow vehicles at peak hours and and there is we traffic is changing somewhat I mean maybe not for the peak hour but we're designing our roadway for one two one two hours of a day and even when we're thinking about some of our capacity projects on 185th or even 145th, I mean, we're planning for these peak periods. And we're, how, 
how do we balance that with sort of this need for pedestrian safety and some of the work that I mean, the proactive stuff that you've sort of talked about is how do we how do we balance how do we balance try to balance those two things or do we need to sort of lean more if we're going to get to a target vision zero do we need to lean more on safety and less on designing our roadways for one hour a day yeah, that's a great question. I think um, our industry as a whole is grappling with the kind of results of our designing for one hour periods of the day in, in the form of kind of sprawl and um, generally, you know, intersections and, and roadways that are wider than they need to be for the most part, um, especially for pedestrians. So uh, great point. Um, so in terms of the standards that we've recently adopted, I think that they, um, they do lean into that a little bit. So we have allowed for level service E in the growth areas, the, the King County candidate growth centers. Um, and that that is, you know, specifically the areas around the light rail station, uh, along the Roar corridor, some other key locations in the city. Um, and so what that does is we, we've essentially reconciled the fact that we do not want to expand the footprint of those roadways. We do not want to make them wider for people to cross. Uh, so we have allowed for, we have, we have said, okay, we, in these areas we're comfortable with more delay so long as we have robust transfer, transportation infrastructure that provide choices and options for people to get around. And so part of what you'll see here, I think, in the next year is um, a list of uh, updated transportation impact fee growth projects. So we have we've updated our standard. We now need to update our growth project list to um, kind of line up with that. Uh, so you'll see, you know, once we get to that point, we aren't there yet, but we'll have uh, a, a more varied list of projects that are not specifically um, related to uh, road, uh, sorry, driving uh, capacity improvements, but rather uh, some projects that are specifically for pedestrian or bicyclists. And so, you know, while our current growth list is really only related to expanding things for vehicle uh, increase, these new, this new list of projects will be tied to, uh, you know, to some degree to, to vehicle capacity improvements, but also will incorporate elements of pedestrian bike improvements just in, in other varied locations throughout the city. So, you know, we, we leaned into it a little bit. I don't think, you know, we didn't do anything crazy bold. Um, there are other ways to look at uh, the level of service metric. Um, some places, uh, and even the state of California does something uh, kind of unique in that they look at uh, vehicle miles traveled, so it, it does something to encourage growth, more compact growth. Uh, so you get, you know, you, you basically are measured if you're further out from urban centers, um, you pay more fees or you do more mitigations, um, so it disincentivizes that kind of uh, land use uh, sprawl. Um, but there's different ways to look at it too, and, and um, even cities in our, our state will um, do things of a similar nature in that they work toward um, you're, you're required to accomplish travel demand management practices as opposed to meeting a concurrency standard. So what what are you doing to support, you, you project doing to support transit, uh, bike, and ped? How are you contributing to making things better? How is your development being responsible as opposed to have you met this level of service standard for the intersection? So I think it's a good way to flip the script because you get what you measure, obviously. Um, so it, it's it's an important, I think, policy discussion. I think we have um, 
we've leaned into it a little bit, and I think we've accomplished what we need to for you know this this TMP cycle. Um, but yeah, it's it's worth further further consideration as especially as more data and tools are become available. I think we're our industry is changing a lot with with new technology and tools available. Thank you, thank you, Mayor. Any further questions or comments? Thank you very much for the excellent report, and we are adjourned. Thank you. With the budget, um, but.